0: This is our last week in our series on the Psalms that we've been doing this summer. And we've been using this framework to interpret them, saying there's three different kinds of Psalms. They're Psalms of orientation, expressing our core theological principles. These are, are, are the bedrock of faith, that God is, his steadfast love endures forever, that God is faithful, that God is merciful, that God is loving. And then there are psalms of disorientation. When life happens and things go sideways and everything you thought you knew was true about God and the world and how it was supposed to work get called into question. And then God shows up in a fresh and surprising and exciting way and there's psalms of reorientation, psalms of rescue. So three different kinds of psalms and really four things that the psalmist says to God. Your great help, trust you and thank you and so clearly this morning in psalm 22 this is a psalm of disorientation this is as disorienting as it gets and it's a cry for help but behind this psalm I, i hear this sort of very modern question why me at some point in our lives we all find ourselves asking that question, particularly when circumstances seem to conspire against us. That somehow we are unfairly being singled out for affliction. And of course, these these range from the ridiculous to the absolutely heartrending. On the ridiculous side of the leisure, you know, you're you're late for an appointment and you can't find a parking spot. And so you go, why me? Or you're in line at Target, and it's the express checkout lane, and someone in front of you has a full cart. They, they don't have 15 items or less, and so you go, why me? If you just paid off your, your, your car, and, and the engine fails, and it needs thousands of dollars of work, and you go, why me? Or you're a parent, you've just put the kids to bed, it's 10 o'clock at night, and you go to pour yourself a tall glass of wine from the bottle, or if you're my family, from the box, um, and it's empty. And you go, why me? Why me? And then there's the serious, heart-rending, punch-in-the-gut side of the ledger. You get an unexpected diagnosis. Someone you love gets that. Why me? A friend or a spouse betrays you? Why me? Someone close to you dies before it seems like their time? Why me? Anxiety wells up within you, attacking you from the inside, or, or depression hangs over you like a cloud, and you go, why me? Why is this happening to me? Psalm 22 is a cry to God of a desperate heart asking, Why me, God? Why me? Why am I the one that you've forsaken? It's the cry of a person whose world is falling apart. And this is a psalm of David. That's who it's ascribed to. And so if we look at David's life, we think of him as God's anointed, you know, sort of one of God's favorites. But if you read his life story, there are lots And lots of times where his whole world is falling apart, where he loses a child tragically, where one of his sons kills his other son and then leads a rebellion against him. It's a life of calamities in many ways. And so we've wondered, along with the psalmist, where is God in the midst of the chaos? Does God care? Has he hurt us? Has he forsaken us? Has he left us alone? And the psalm, the most famous words of this psalm, and it opens with these, this haunting call. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the repetition of this phrase, my God, my God, it doesn't occur anywhere else in Scripture except where this psalm is being quoted. And it, it just underscores the unique intensity of the psalmist's suffering and estrangement. Here he is pleading with God, asking, Why have you left me? Where are you now? This sense of God abandonment, God forsakenness, is the most lonely isolation that there is. Right? We human beings, we we know that we were created for relationship. It says at the beginning of Scripture that God created us in, in, in God's own image. And when we think about that, what does that mean? You know, that, that, what does it mean to be in God's image? And, and one of the things I think that means is we're created in the image of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God who is from eternity, a God of unity in relationship. And so, thus, one of the things that it means to be created in this image, to bear the mark and stamp of this God, is that we were created to be in relationship with God and other people. Even if we are introverts, we were created to be in relationship With God and others. We're relational creatures. And so when tragedy befalls us, we call upon those relationships, those deep relationships, to sustain us. But the perverse thing about tragedy is that it can call those relationships that nurture and sustain us into question. And it can cut us off from the very source of our life and our being, it it, it deprives us of something essential about our humanity. And so isolation is a deeply dehumanizing experience, one that profoundly obscures the image of God within us. As God said in the garden after creating Adam in, in Genesis 2, but before creating Eve, it is not good that man should be alone. Not good. Not tov. Not nurturing of the actualization of the potential for life embedded in creation by God. This kind of isolation doesn't nurture life, it destroys it. Eastern State Penitentiary was founded just outside Philadelphia in the 1820s. It was, at its time, a state-of-the-art facility, employing the newest and best in technology and thinking in the nascent field of criminology. And Eastern State was actually one of the first Penitentiaries, And this word penitentiary itself comes from uh, the Christian theological world, this notion of doing penitence. And the idea was that if criminals were given the opportunity to contemplate the wrongness of their crimes, then they would repent of them and through this repentance would experience transformation. And so Eastern State Penitentiary was constructed to facilitate this process of soul-searching by the people who were the inmates who were housed there. And so each inmate was housed in a solitary cell. And why these solitary cells? Well, the the, the idea comes straight from Christian monasticism, the world of monks and nuns. And in fact, the word monk comes from the Greek word monos, meaning alone. So the idea was we're basically going to give criminals a, a monastic experience, an involuntary monastic experience. We will put them alone in a cell, they will contemplate their crimes, they will emerge transformed and renewed productive members of society. So we deprive them of human contact, they'll contemplate their crimes, they'll repent, they will change. And the only view that they got of the outside world was a skylight above them. Sort of a subtle reminder that even though you're alone in here, God is watching. God is looking down. So the question then was, did isolating the inmates from human contact work? Did they contemplate their crimes, repent, and emerge from their confinement, reformed and ready to be productive members of society? We, of course, know the answer is a resounding no. Not even close. What they discovered, to their surprise, was that when people were left alone, two things happened. Either the folks who were inmates became so isolated... That they started to suffer deep emotional and, and psychological damage because they became sort of withdrawn and non responsive. Or they became increasingly agitated and violent. And so I- instead of reforming these prisoners for reintegration into society, this process of being isolated and abandoned and left alone actually deformed them. It wasn't transformative, it was deformative. And we see this. Risk This threat in Psalm 22, this cry of deep pain caused by isolation, but not just isolation, God-forsakenness, God-abandonment. What does that do to a soul, to be abandoned by God, rejected by the very community that's supposed to sustain you? What do you do when you've trusted in God, but you're not sure that there is even a god listening there how can you give voice to that kind of pain that kind of doubt but it's real and just an aside on the sort of subject of of doubt and of pain and of isolation and how we give voice to that you know Katie we were talking about the songs this week and she's like "Yeah, we need a few more songs of lament like most of our church songs are sort of happy clappy you know and and that's good I mean it's nice to not get depressed on a Sunday morning absolutely but sometimes you don't always feel great. And sometimes you don't always want to go full, to a room where you have to pretend where everything is okay and right with the world. I don't know. The ESPN app subtly opened on my phone. Why me? Um, <laughs> right now, but... but. Uh, there's this great, some great research that's been done on the importance of being able to express doubt and real-life pain. Uh, this book called You Lost Me sort of went through why millennials aren't in church and asked people basically what left, why did they leave, and one of the resounding findings was that young adults, which is a term I don't really like when you're like 35 years old, you're still a young adult, like aren't you just an adult, but never mind, uh, um, you know, the tragedy was that they didn't find that church was a place they could safely wrestle with their doubts. And it's such a sad irony because we look at Psalm 22 and we see that the scriptures are a treasure trove of what do you do without pain, suffering. The world that is not as it should be. The Psalms, are, so many of them are about just that. The plurality are about Psalms of disorientation, crying, help. And then the message is you're not alone. And doubt is not the opposite of faith, right? It's... it's It's a component of faith. It's an element of faith. And we don't suffer in silence, right? We don't push it and bury it deep down, but we are invited to cry out to God. And so what helps the psalmist in the midst of this isolation in pain is to remember. And at first he can't even remember his own life, his own past. He has to turn to what God has done in the life of his ancestors for God's people. He says, in you our fathers trusted They trusted and you delivered them, so they've been where I am. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Saying, even though it doesn't look like it now, somehow what happened to them is going to happen to me. And when they trusted in God, God revealed his character and delivered them. And so after thinking about, okay, God, you've been faithful in the life of of my family and my ancestors and my people, then he turns to his own life. God's faithfulness to him since birth. Yet you took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Saying the reality that I'm experiencing now hasn't been the reality for my own life and it won't be. Right? There's such a tendency to think that whatever it is we are going through right now is how things are always going to be. And you don't believe that this too shall pass. But even these these memories, they don't fix everything or take away all of the pain, all of this sense of having been abandoned. And and there's this sense uh, that the psalmist gives of he's not just alone, but but he's being ganged up on. He's surrounded by these hostile people who are hell-bent on destroying him. He compares these people to angry bulls, vicious lions, ravenous dogs. They're making sport of him. And that's the worst part about feeling alone, is that even though we might be surrounded by people, they're not on our team, they're against us. And in fact, being around people can be even more isolating. That's the twisting effect that sin has on human relationships, that the very thing that is supposed to be an expression of our having been created in God's image can turn into something that instead obscures the image of God and calls our relationship with God in question. The presence of of bad people in many ways intensifies our experience of the absence of God. And really, at, at, at its core, what the psalmist is experiencing is... It's a kind of alienation and abandonment and isolation of death. He's dying, and and, and death is the process of loss. Losing our physical health, losing our relationships and community, and losing our relationship with God, this threat, that, that everything that nurtures us and sustains us is just going to be chopped off. And we die alone, without anyone. And so the psalmist is experiencing all these three dimensions of dying. You know, his physical health saying, I am poured out like water. Just empty, physically empty. My heart is like wax, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Later, he says, I can count my bones. This idea that he's just a skeleton so that he can see every bone in his body. So he loses his physical health and then he loses his community as he nears the moment of death. He's saying basically, you know, at my deathbed I'm not surrounded by people who love me but people who are, are laughing and are ready to go through my clothes and look through my, my loose change. And then lastly, there's this experience of, 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 of fear of God forsakenness as he exclaims, oh Lord, don't be far away. That ultimate consequence of death, to be cut off from God, who is the source of life and of being. And in the land of the dead, there is no hope for vindication, no hope of restoration, no worship of God. But then something remarkable happens. The, the, the psalm sort of, it, it changes its key. It's been this very sorrowful, you know, minor key, and, and then it switches on a dime to this bright major The psalmist is no longer questioning God, but instead praising God for answering his cries and delivering him. And we're left in wonder, what is this great reversal that's taken place? What's happened between verses 20 and 22? You know, between deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, save me from the mouth of the lion. Things are not going well. And then it says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen, and I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. What happened that that turns the depths of sorrow and alienation and isolation into the heights of praise? As Christians, the ultimate answer for us rests in the important role that Psalm 22 played in the life and the death, really, of Jesus. Those opening words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are are most famous and familiar for us for being the words of Jesus as he dies on the cross in Matthew and in Mark. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And so Jesus, that he used this psalm at the hour of his death, that makes him the interpretive key and clue to it. And the light that Christ's death shines on Psalm 22 is that when God seems most far off, we need to look to his drawing near to us in Jesus Christ. In the seeming absence of God, look to Christ. Christ's death and God abandonment is God's solidarity with the God-forsaken and the brokenhearted. And His resurrection is what gives us hope. That God will not leave us or forsake us, and we know this is true because Jesus experienced all of that death, all three dimensions of death, his physical health, his, his relational uh, uh, network, and, and theological. Jesus experienced all that, and God raised him. And his victory is our victory. And so this pattern of Jesus' death and resurrection is the pattern of the psalm, suffering and rejection culminating in vindication, which reveals the kingdom of God, the rule of God over all life. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And the Lord rules over the nations in, the, in verse 28. And in that kingship, that means that we are never, ever alone. And so the kingdom of God, that's our almost our ultimate hope of, of God's victory over everything that alienates us and isolates us from God and one another. It's, it's the restoration to relationship that restores the image of God in us. And, and as the end of the psalm makes clear, this isn't just good news for the individual is good news for the whole world to be shared with the congregation, with the whole world, future generations. The good news of Psalm 22 is that God will not leave us or forsake us in our isolation, but has drawn near to us and will deliver us from whatever abyss we're lost in. And so Psalm 22, it sharply poses this question, Why me, God? And the answer that God gives to that question is Jesus Christ. The answer to the question, why me or where are you? It's not, you know, a philosophical explanation. It's a story of Christ's passion. It isn't some principle, it's a person. And at the end of the day, what we hang our hope on isn't a cool, rational, detached argument, but the empty cross and empty grave which are witnesses to the victory of God over the isolating power of death. That the question, why me, doesn't echo in a universe that is infinitely expanding, empty, void, devoid of meaning and hope. God answers our question by drawing us near. And it's only in that drawing near that we can join the psalmist and exclaiming as he does at the very last verse, He has done it. Beautiful words to end the psalm. Yes, God has done it. The it that He has done is to die the death of Psalm 22 so that we don't have to. His hands and feet were pierced with nails for us. His garments were divided among the soldiers. He was surrounded, attacked, and devoured by the forces of evil. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that all who belong to him will know that we are never ever alone. In the darkness, Christ is with us. In the valley of the shadow of death, Christ is with us. At the hour of our greatest sorrow or fear, Christ is with us. In the hells of this world, Christ is with us. And when we're all alone without a friend in the world, Christ is with us. He has done it. He has done it all. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray.